Belisario specifically spoke to me about this. I'm not supposed to question it too closely. Okay, go right ahead. <laughs> Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny Show Screen Scouts. People who nitpick the adults' details will be kicked by a horse. <laughs> wow. This is what you get when you have Brandon do the tagline instead of me. I'm gonna get to why that tagline matters in a moment. <laughs> oh, great. I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. I'm Paul. And on today's show, we'll discuss the first season of Quantum Leap from 1989, starring Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, and produced by Donald P. Belisario, Deborah Pratt, and Harker Wade. Pratt and Belisario also did a good chunk of the writing, and uh, you should probably go look at the IMDb for the long list of writers and directors and guest stars who are too numerous to name here today. And joining us on this leap is Marshall Ryan Maresca, author of the Maradane Saga, and one of the hosts of World Building for Masochists. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Thank you, thank you. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm thrilled to be here with y'all. Now, this is your fault. Mm-hmm. You <laughs> yes. made this decision. Marshall was like, gee willikers, I've got a book coming out and, and I would like to, you know, let people know that the book exists. And I was like, well, you know, a person who has a podcast. And so why don't you come on? And Marshall's like, great. And I was like, awesome. What do you want to do? And you're like, quantum leap. <laughs> And I was like, wow, we're going to we're going to go real back in time because Quantum Leap is almost 40 years old now, uh, but we're doing it. Wait, it's not 40 years old. It's almost 40 years old. It's 30 years old. Yeah. yeah. Almost Sean, 40 years oh, old. Sean was rounding by the 10. <laughs> yes. Very, very confidently. <laughs> you always round up with age. What are you doing? I'm almost 40. Paul's almost 873. <laughs> oh, so Paul doesn't get 10s. We still managed to be specific for... Cool. I should have clarified. 873 centuries. Ah, cool, cool, cool. Anyway, Marshall, I have to ask, why? Why Quantum Leap? What? What is... What's the deal? So, Quantum Leap for me was, like, the definitive show of my teenage years. It was the absolute one I was obsessed with during that time. And, like, it fit in perfectly in the sun. It began airing in March of 1989, so like right before I turned 16, and it ended airing in May of 1993, so just shortly after I turned 20. So it was in that like perfect time slot of like to be your teenage obsession show for me. And yeah, I just, I watched this show obsessively. I had, for a period of time, I had literally every single episode on a VHS tape. And this was, you know, in, you know, the early 90s where VHS tapes were, you know, you, you needed a lot of VHS tapes to put 97 episodes of a show uh, all on, on a VHS tape. You had, you had to be dedicated to your craft to pull that off. But that was the kind of dork that I was at the time. And, I mean, it was just a show that I love, but it's also a show that, like, time has passed. And so there's all elements that I think it did really well at the time that hold up, and there's elements that not so much, and certainly, you know, in being older and hopefully a little wiser now, uh, I look back at him with, like, 
a different eye and and perhaps wince a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, and there there's a lot of and you when you said like what kind of show would you want to talk about and you mentioned like especially through a lens of how it approaches stories of marginalized people. This is definitely a thing Quantum Leap attempted to do with the best of intentions, whether or not it necessarily hit those marks. Well, that's a thing we can certainly talk about, but it was it certainly tried in a in a very white knighty sort of way. Yeah, it reminded me, and I'm sure we'll talk about that specific episode from season one, which I know immediately you're referencing, but it reminded me a lot of when Alien Nation tried to do this, like the very first episode, when Sykes is like, they're, they're discriminating against the newcomer aliens at a school, and it's just, clearly they just like looked at old footage of like the desegregation era of the school system and went, that, but with aliens, and having Sykes go, you all are, are just racist, look at you, <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, like that's kind of what it reminds me of is like that era had this perception of like we can we can deal with these very big issues with like the largest mallet you could possibly imagine it's a real big mallet that they that they use on this show but they I, again i think they they did it with the best of intentions and i mean for a show that looks back strongly of like the past 30 years of american history it does not like pull its punches in terms of like there, there was some terrible things that happened in between the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it doesn't pretend that that's not the case. Over the course of the run of the show, it, it, it tries to tackle a lot. It, it doesn't do it well, that can be argued, but you know, it, it certainly was well-meaning. I think this is why my grandmother loved this show, because you have your own sort of very personal linkage to the show, because it was really important to you when you were a teenager to early, early adult and I have a, an important relationship with this show because this is one of the show, the sci-fi shows and things that my grandmother like really loved and would have on all the time. So when it was in syndication, like anytime it, the episodes were on TV, she'd have it on. Like the, this, the show would be playing. She would know when it was running. And so I remember seeing, I've probably seen every episode of this show and I just don't remember them all. Not in order, of course, but I remember like distinctly, like my grandmother laughing at episodes of the show because at times it's really funny. Like when he jumps into a body, he really isn't expecting this season literally ends. He jumps into a woman's body and that's where the season ends. And so you have like this, this very fun show that my grandmother just really got into. And I think part of it is kind of what you're saying, Marshall, is at the time it was a show really trying to explore the issues of primarily American culture, you know, successfully or not, it was doing a thing that I, I don't really remember a lot of television addressing in that era. But science fiction would, right? It would say, like, we're going to tackle this subject, sometimes with a mallet, a very large <laughs> mallet. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I'm very excited to get more into that conversation, specifically as perhaps the youngest person here. Uh, the person who, when Quantum Leap came out, I didn't exist yet. <laughs> because I do have a lot of thoughts about everything that you've just mentioned. But before we get into our discussion of the first season of Quantum Leap, I would like to remind folks who are listening that we want to hear from you. 
So, please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We want to put together a listener mailbag episode very soon with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more, so please get those thoughts in. And also, please let us know if you grew up on Quantum Leap as well, and how you feel about it now that time has passed in the exact same vein that we have just discussed. What are your thoughts about the show? Well, let's get to it. So... Uh, Paul has not spoken in a hot minute, so I want to let Paul open us with some general thoughts about the first season of Quantum Leap, this first truncated season. This first truncated season. So I'm I'm going to dig in a bit and explain my own history with the show. And I had never seen the first season. The first episode I remember watching of Quantum Leap was was the premiere of season two with the U2 plane and Gary Powers and trying to change history. So I'd never seen any of the season. I tried to figure out, I believe that's season two, episode one. Am I wrong? No, season two. It shouldn't be. You're going to open a Pandora's box. Oh my God. Do you have an encyclopedic knowledge? (laughs) Which episode was the one with Gary, where he leaps into something else, but he tries to show he's changing history by trying to stop the YouTube flight. Oh, okay. That is true. That is what he tries to do. But that episode is called Honeymoon Express. But yeah, that's because... Al in the present is in a senatorial hearing and they're like, well, if we're spending all this money to send a guy to the past, then let's have him do something big. And he's not really in a position to do something big. Right. That's the first episode I watched. And as we were talking before this, this podcast started about television, schedule, I figured, well, why didn't I see the first season, even though it was truncated and replacement? That's because Friday nights, I was watching Mr. Belvedere and just the, and just the ten of us instead on Friday night, so I missed the first. So this is the first time I've seen this any of these episodes. I never got to see them in reruns, so this is all brand new to me. So like, what? So when I was starting watching Quantum, I mean, the the episodic nature of how television is structured, it was easy for me to drop into season two. By which time they had found their feet, so it was interesting to see them trying to find their feet in this first season. And we can get into more specific details. Of that, but I, I find this is a very interesting like episode I've never seen and watching them trying to work this concept into what the later seasons became. Brandon, what about you? What are some general thoughts? And then we'll go to Marshall. So I have two completely separate general thoughts. The first is, I think a lot about time travel fiction. Because time travel fiction is very obviously about history. It's about how we feel about our histories, how we reckon with it, and how we feel about the theoretical what-if question, if you could change it, what would you do? And Quantum Leap is, in the vein of said time travel science fiction, very concerned with the question of the experiences of Americans in the 60s to 80s period, and what can be done to potentially not only observe how those things are perfect and not so perfect, but what can be done to improve the lives of individual people in those worlds by observing those individual kinds of experiences. Which is very interesting, first and foremost, because even when it's trying to ask big picture questions about American history, it's asking it through the lens of an individual, uh, many of whom are not like the big names of history that we typically consider. And also because it also commits itself to asking very small picture questions about the individual lives of people who are still obviously being shaped by history in a certain way, but in ways that we do not consider capital H history a lot of the time. Like the very first episode, Genesis Part 1, is when uh, Sam has completed his first leap. 
at the very beginning of the episode, he is put in the body of a pilot testing an experimental plane. And the fact that it exists, the fact that it needs to be tested, etc., the, the complicated questions of being a family man in a career where it is highly likely that you will die in a plane crash and no one will know that you have died is unique and interesting. And I love in particular that it spends a lot of time shifting from Sam's perspective so we could witness his pregnant wife and her pregnant friends have feelings about the fact that miles away from them, any of their partners could be dead at any moment and they won't find out until it makes the news the next morning, if at all. And have to hope that they can see a parachute in the sky afterward is like a lot, actually. And I, I have a lot of very strong feelings about that narratively. But also I appreciate that in the late 80s to early 90s, people were asking those kinds of questions about history because a lot of time travel science fiction does not. A lot of time travel science fiction does not actually care about the lived experiences of individuals, especially if they're not of note or marginalized. And that shift in time travel science fiction was a thing that I imagined was Quantum Leap's fault because it only happened very recently that we spent time actually not just caring about whether artifacts were lost from a thing, but whether the lives of actual individuals were being touched by the shape of history, and whether you had a responsibility to change something about it. So that's one part. And the second part is, as someone who has barely watched any Quantum Leap, much like Paul and Sean, I've watched mostly on syndication, never having any idea at what point in a season, if at all, I was consuming the thing, and it struck me as very weird and very peculiar, and I kind of dug it. But the thing that lasts the very longest with me about Quantum Leap is not about an episode of Quantum Leap, but about fan apocrypha about Quantum Leap. (laughs) (laughs) By which I mean, Belisario's Maxim is the greatest thing to ever happen to television, and I think a a lot about it as a result. Well, just tell the listeners what Belisario's Maxim is. So, Belisario's Maxim is, according to the apocryphal fan story of Belisario's Maxim, at a convention, Donald P. Belisario was confronted by a fan. I'm not sure if it happened on a panel live. I suspect that it did. Where uh, said fan was like, there are all of these weird inconsistencies about how leaping works. Do you have any definitive answer as to how it's supposed to make sense, to which Belisario is rumored to have stated, don't think about it very closely. (laughs) One of the things that I think I enjoy about Quantum Leap now that I'm seeing an entire season is it really doesn't care how time travel works, because that's not the point. A part of it is obviously the point, because Al's goal is to bring Sam back. But narratively, a lot of what matters to Quantum Leap is Sam is given an opportunity to change someone's life for the better and has to figure out what that possibility is and take it. It doesn't care about whether it's breaking any established rules of time travel or whether it's uh, foundational scientific elements are too obtuse or prone to plot holes. How Sam gets in the journey does not matter. Sam getting in the journey is what matters. And I enjoy that a lot. I wish more 
science fiction television was willing to not have to give me a great deal of details. I love a lot in the first episode that there are things that Sam is not permitted to know, not because they're actually rule-breaking in any obvious way to science fiction readers who think a lot about time travel, but because Ziggy told Al that Sam is not supposed to know, and Al believes it, so we just have to believe it because Sam's not gonna hear it from Al. I think that's fine. It, it allows us to just dig into the journey, and most of those journeys are actually really neat, and that's enough for me. But it's funny when they actually kind of break that when when Al has the has the hieroglyphic sla- sash and is trying to <laughs> yeah. trying to give him in code. That was hilarious. Trying to and break he the rules. Gets in trouble. Mm-hmm. Gets, he in, gets trouble. in trouble. Yes, it's it's funny. But you you did hit on one of the things that always fascinated me and that I sort of love about this show is that while the time travel is supposedly based on science and it is this big scientific theory and experiment that yeah science with big quotation marks. On a lot of levels, it runs on on woo woo physics, where it's just like, why are you going to this place? What what what? Who is deciding what's what you have to fix? This is, I mean, that's far more mystical than anything science based, and it embraces that of just like we're just going to have to do things based on a moral code rather than what's necessarily scientifically based. And the only real science of the time travel is just this idea. I, I don't remember if he explicitly spells out the, the string theory of quantum physics. He uh, does. Quantum he does? Okay. Where in the first like episode, I you think. Tie, yeah. You tie two pieces of the string together, and then you ball them up, and all the parts of your life touch other parts, and so you can travel to anywhere and leap from one part to another. Even that theory, Belisario came up with that theory just for the excuse of, I want to do a time travel show, but I don't have to deal too much with like props and sets and all that yeah. that are going to be too We don't hard. need to meet so, Cleopatra. So I don't want to travel further back than the 1950s. So <laughs> I'm just going to make a time travel rule that locks me in no earlier than the 50s. And that's going to be a lot easier to deal with. And then the other part, which was exactly what you said, that he wanted to make it a time travel show that focuses on normal people, not like the big historical moment. Like if th- this is an even older show, when I was a little kid, this was the perfect show for when I was nine, which was the show Voyagers, where they yes! traveled through time to 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 make history right. There, it was it was literally the big moments of history, but also the sanitized from your history books versions of that, not the messy true versions of that. Well, so they yeah. were they were always making history right in a way that fit those narratives rather than fit reality. I was thinking just the other day about the Edison episode where Edison is this hardworking guy in a lab by himself trying to get the light bulb right. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but later I didn't know it that, when I was nine no. years old. All of those were very much about the big moments in, in history. And this one was about, you know, just the lived lives of, of average people and just making those average people's lives a little better by little choices and little things that Sam could do to help them. That made the stories more personal and thus more relatable. I, I, I do appreciate that while occasionally famous figures do appear, like Buddy Holly at one point is a character, but he, he's like a kid in that. That for the most part, right, you know, even when we're presented sort of stereotypical figures, like he's a mafia hitman at one point. He's not like a famous mafia hitman. He's just a hitman 
in in a sort of hypothetical situation in in our past. Or he's at the Watergate Hotel during Watergate, but has nothing to do with the burglars whatsoever. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, I mean, the funny thing is Al's desperately trying to tell him, and he's just dancing and singing, completely oblivious to anything that's about to happen there. I think it's also funny because I I think that Sam doesn't realize what Watergate means at that moment either. Well, yeah, the Swiss cheese memory is a very useful plot device. Usual plot device of Sam at any point needs anything explained to him is because his memory is Swiss cheese and therefore... Or he has a skill that's like, oh yeah, that's one of his doctors or one of his degrees. Like, oh yes, I can do, I can do medicine so I can inject ethanol and stop a labor. Yeah. Why a physicist knows anyhow. Yeah. The, the number of skill... <laughs> Like, Sam Beckett is the most skilled human on the planet. And I, I mean, the, he, the, he's like a proto-librarian. Yeah. I mean, thus yeah, being the much. perfect candidate to be a time travel agent, because he's, you know, he's an expert in science, he's also a medical doctor, he also has degrees in ancient languages, he also is an accomplished musician who, I think in season two they mentioned he played in Carnegie Hall at one point. He's an excellent singer. He knows five forms of martial arts. Yeah. <laughs> like, whatever skills he might need that he doesn't have, Al does. And right. so therefore... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Al can fly a jet plane because he's an astronaut. And One aspect of this too is the fact that a lot of times the thing they think they're there to solve, which they usually do is sometimes not the thing they're actually there to solve. So like the Buddy Holly example, they think that they're just supposed to get two people together like cause someone had written a bunch of letters and that he, she get the, the woman Tess gets together with a man who wrote letters about her or whatever. And that's what they think it's about. But it's actually the giving the lyric for Peggy Sue to Buddy Holly. That's what sends him to his next leap. That doesn't happen in every episode, but it's fun when it does because it sort of sets your expectations on a different scale. It's also very timey whiny. Yeah. Like, it so where so did the work actually come from then? <laughs> but it gets to something even more interesting to me, which is another reason why I like it very much. Because, uh, like Sean said, even when someone who is who has a big established place in history shows up, it's not about them. It means that incidentally. Whenever Sam solves a problem for that character, you're also telling the story of how all of the things that we think are grand and poetic and uh, significant about a historical event are about the interactions between ordinary people in ordinary ways. Because that means that in the real world, Buddy Holly just got a lyric from his boss. One of the fun things they always, they, they tend to do, whenever... Other things happening in the episode are more complex than the actual problem to solve is usually pretty simple. One, one of the examples from the second season when he's in playing Le- Men of La Mancha, most of that episode is just the excuse to have to have Scott Bakula do Men of La Mancha, and you know very little else actually happens. And then there's stuff with Sam, the the woman who is the understudy in that show is his old piano teacher that he had a crush on and all that. But all he actually has to do is catch a drunk guy so he doesn't break his leg. Like, that's all he has to do. And so everything else is just the drama around it. But the actual problem to solve is incredibly minimal. And that's that's an interesting thing that they'll do whenever they want other stuff happening. If it's a hard problem, then there's not going to be any side drama that, that he has to deal with. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and a part of that is is also, I mean, I think by 1989, we should be, many audience members should be at least vaguely familiar with, like, the concept of time travel and issues of, like, the butterfly effect and things like that. So not everything's going to be like, oh, you solve civil rights in this episode. It's going to be, you know, you stop the drunk guy from breaking his leg. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's the thing that sets right the the timeline, as it were, Uh, which I always find interesting. It proves the timeline to something. It, I mean, this wasn't in this first season, but Marshall, Marshall will probably quote me the actual episode. I remember an episode where in the original timeline, both JFK, JFK and Jackie get shot at Dallas and he manages to keep Jackie alive. Oh, that, was the, that was the Lee Harvey Oddwell episode, which was the season five premiere. Yeah, so so basically he changes the timeline so that Jackie lives. In the original timeline, she died, but she, he improves the timeline so that Jackie lived. So that means that the original timeline at the beginning of Comic Book Park is not our own. It's not our world because he's moving towards something and changing things. Hold on. Now I have to do the, the – I'm sorry, everybody. but Yes. Or it always was, and it's only because a time traveler corrected the wrong timeline that we live in this version. We only know that – she survived because Sam did the thing. Did you know that Quantum Leap is a memoir? <laughs> you did not. <laughs> of course. <laughs> which is especially funny given that there is a couple episodes where it shows you their present, which is 1999, which looks cool. <laughs> well, well, like in the premiere, which because I'd never seen this first season, and seeing Al in that futuristic weird car, it's like, what the heck am I watching? Am I in the right show? <laughs> I'm going to be real. The opening of the premiere is wild. Because the thing that threw me off the most about the opening of Genesis Part 1 is just the lady that Al picks up on the side of the road. I can ask all kinds of questions about why this why this Nevada road is deserted, why it's so dark, why there are no stars. I could ask all of those questions. My sole question is, why does this lady's shoes and earrings, why are they battery-operated? Where the it's hell the was she going in Nevada that her clothes glow? A discotheque and why, in, in the Why desert. doesn't Al ask where she was headed? She just gets in the car. Yeah, I thought it was a virtual reality program Al was in. Me too. And it's like, but no, no, this is actual reality. I was like, what? Yeah. No, we know the answer through season one, why Al doesn't ask that question. Because Al is a ladies' man. Every single episode, it's it, almost every episode this season, he is talking about a different woman he has seduced. Sometimes multiple. Yeah. Eventually they'll get fixed. At the end of the show, they'll get fixed, but you know. But I, I just find it funny because Al is like, he, he clearly is kind of like sleaze, but there's a moment in, I can't remember which episode, where he says there's a difference between sleaze and sleaze. And, and I think what he means is, I am the kind of person that loves to jump from woman to woman to woman, but I'm not the kind of person that manipulates women and takes advantage of women. They know exactly what we're getting into, mm-hmm. and they're into it as well. That's what I. He's just. He's just like. He's just a player, basically. He's just this like figure that like women just come to him. I don't know why Dean Stockwell in this show is considered the hot stuff because you have Scott Bakula right there. But Scott Bakula does a lot of kissing, so he's the hot stuff too. That's true. Nine times out of ten, in any given episode, one of the big moral problems Sam has is that some woman wants to have sex with him, and he's like, no, please, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that's the recurring problem that he has in any given episode, is like, 
It is very interesting to see a show in the 80s, like, with a male protagonist go, I know that I'm in the body of someone who is expected to have sex with this woman, but I'm not that guy, so I don't want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Because in another show, that guy would be, oh, no one's going to ask me any questions about this? Okay, let's fade to black then. They, They very explicitly give Sam a strong moral code about that. And mm-hmm. yeah. it's it's actually interesting because over the course of the run of the show, Al is always encouraging him like, no, she's hot. You should go for it. And then the few times where Sam actually does, Al is actually like, why did wait you a second. Do that? You, why did you do that? Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I mean, like it matters in particular because that kind of moral code was rare for television even beyond its point. Like, it was still considered at least an amoral question to be that lascivious, to be that promiscuous as a man, not as a woman. It's a completely different conversation for a different time. Yeah. But, like, it was considered perfectly fine for a man to not have to think about that and still be considered noble. Or even to that it was a reward for one's nobility. But the fact that that's an established character trait of Sam's. And that when it deviates, that's a sign that something has gone wrong. Uh, and even Al can notice the one who has, like, a Rolodex of women is noteworthy in and of itself. But what I think is interesting, the way this has come up, is is when you think about the episodes in this season, almost all of them, relationships are one of the central concerns. They may not be the thing that that gets him to leap to the next the next body but it is central to the storyline so in the very first episode for example it is it's the test pilot and his pregnant wife and the the concerns that exist there with Gerald Bryant in Starcross the technically the third episode he is playing <laughs> I will just say the wiki calls him a lecherous old professor. That's not the impression I necessarily got, but sure. But he is a professor who is having uh, relationships with his students. And so the moral question becomes, is that the thing you should do? And obviously Sam has other baggage there we may come back to. If we go to uh, Sam Cody in The Right Hand of God, it's a boxer who has a platonic relationship with a nun, but then also has a romantic relationship with a stripper who he makes sure to point out that, what she does is perfectly fine because it's a profession, which I just a respect that he didn't just knock her down and try to make her quit her job. How the test was won, he plays a guy who he thinks is supposed to win over this character of Tess, who doesn't want to get married because she thinks she can run with the boys just as much as anybody else, and she can. It turns out it's another guy that that actually is in love with her, and they're gonna. He doesn't care about taking over the family business. Blah blah blah. Right. Let's see. In Double Identity, it's again, he is with somebody he's not supposed to be with because the the Don basically will kill anybody who touches this girl. And it's his job. That one, it actually is his job to fix that whole problem. Uh, in The Circle of Troop, it's a platonic relationship because it is it is that's the one that's about uh, the, the segregation period. And it's him and his relationship to an, an elderly widow and trying to make her see that her inner morality needs to come out. We probably will talk about about that one again the kamikaze kid is again right it's about his sister cheryl and her abusive alcoholic uh boyfriend slash fiance but also his relationship with another girl from school and then play it again seymour is is all a concern about with by the way claudia christian from babylon 5 yes Uh, 
but it's all a concern about the the woman that he is in a relationship with who is the widow of a person that he initially is accused of killing may be a femme fatale. And so, like, every episode, a relationship with, typically a relationship with a woman, almost all of them romantic in some way, with a couple of exceptions. So, like, there is a theme throughout this entire season. <laughs> the time periods are all different, and the and the thing, the trope that they're playing with is different. But there's a theme, and it's all, all kinds of relationships. And I'm glad we talked about this with Al, because Al, it's like a different woman every time. And it's technically a different woman for Sam every time. But he's always in these positions of essentially like the plot, like the the ideal, you know, relationship, monogamy, all of that is kind of what he essentially asserts. It's just oddly enough, he technically is not being monogamous because he's jumping from body to body. But also the show, one of the excuses just have Scott Bakula with his shirt off as much as they possibly could. As well as <laughs> <laughs> before Quantum Leap, he had done a bunch of other TV shows. Like, none of which had been particularly big successes. He had been on Broadway. He was on, I think he was in the original cast recording for, I think the show was called Romance Romance. So, yeah, I mean, he was, he was something of a heartthrob. Like, this is the show that definitely cemented that, but it was certainly the case. And from my experience in being in the nascent online fandom of Quantum Leap, um, in terms of like the fanfic community that existed back then and all of that. It was largely female and a lot of them were, were very into Scott Bakula. It's very interesting on a narrative level then that Scott Bakula is playing the lead and is very regularly, despite knowing and being good at so many things, simply by the quality of his memory being Swiss cheese, is not charismatic. <laughs> Or gains the qualities of his own charisma far later in a, in a, a leap than would be useful or necessary. Uh, meanwhile, the show is con- continually selling us the idea that Al is charismatic, which he is. Dean Stockwell is very charismatic. And they have great chemistry. Although they do play into that very thing, specifically in How the Test Was Won. Because like the whole episode, he's like doing stuff on the ranch as part of the contest that they do. And you have Scott, like, you know, he's shirtless for half of it, and he's, like, wet for other parts of it. And he's looking great. And then that's the only episode where they're, like, at the end of the episode, it's like, you haven't looked in a mirror, have you? Because, of course, Sam sees somebody else in the mirror image in every episode of who he really is. And so at the very end of the episode, he looks in the mirror, he's like, oh, I am not a buff farmhand kind of guy at all. And no. It's a nice, it's a nice reversal. We've been led to expect that no, he's kind of yeah, not. So I think it would be a good time for us. To, we've talked a little bit of like specifics, but I think we we have to talk about what I consider to be the elephant in the room, which is the episode. <laughs> oh boy, it's oh yeah, 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 the color of truth, which is an episode about uh, set in in segregated the segregated South in which Sam goes into the body of one Jesse Tyler, a, a aging black chauffeur for one Ms. with a Z, Ms. Melanie Trafford, uh, who is a widow of the former governor of Alabama. The episode deals in very explicit detail with the sort of growing, burgeoning uh, civil rights movement and has, you know, un- unexpected, unintended 
of course, Sam sitting at a table that is at the counter in a restaurant where he, as a black man, is not allowed to sit. He unwittingly, at one point, even drinks from a fountain that says whites only. Essentially has to challenge racism in America and in 45 minutes, which I give them a lot of props for like the audacity and the and the cojones to, to attempt this. But I'm curious what others make of this episode because it it gave me lots of lots of conflicting feels. <laughs> I should perhaps begin. Oh, go for it, Brandon. <laughs> so it is kind of jarring to know that in the late eighties, mere years before I was born, television had no problem having white people say the n-word. Because he does say it at one point. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I was shook. Just a little bit. I can't believe that... uh, That aired! Yeah, that aired. That aired on NBC. Here are all of my thoughts, somewhat disconnected as they are. I am glad that this episode exists. It is not a perfect episode. As you say, it's simultaneously very audacious and not very helpful to think that you can resolve the history of the civil rights movement in 45 minutes. But it's 45 minutes that a lot of white audiences probably didn't think that they were going to spend doing that in particular that night. In, like, what, April 1989. (laughs) And I do appreciate, as a result, that it happened, and that it included, for its time just as much as it is for mine in 2021, one of the starkest and most obvious indicators that a white person is being racist to a black person, which is the N-word. Short of watching a man die on screen, that does a lot of narrative work, very obviously. It is obviously very audacious that they decided to tell the story of a a white woman learning that she had a responsibility to do what is right regardless of what is the cultural norm around her. And acknowledging that she has a great deal of power, that because she has a great deal of power, it is her responsibility. It's kind of hollow to me, like the very worst part of the episode is. Sam didn't need to be black to tell anybody this. If we are to believe that Sam has a strong moral compass, which we do for several episodes, this is undeniable. It would be just as powerful, if not more powerful, for him to have been uh, Ms. Melanie's son, grandson, a neighbor, a citizen, witnessing these atrocities and knowing... Well, I can't do anything about it because nobody has any problem just beating me up and saying that something's wrong with me for trying to lift up black people in the area. But nobody's going to tell that to her. So maybe I need to ask her to do the thing. I think that would be a more powerful thing because the the thing that sucks about the episode as a result is ultimately you're saying the thing that changes these kinds of historical injustices is when... Marginalized people have wealthy white friends. (laughs) And not that you have a moral obligation regardless of how close you are to the marginalized. And I will say that this is a strength ultimately. That the only reason anybody gets to care is because the person that they're seeing suffering is Sam. Someone who they know doesn't deserve it and can't convince anybody else otherwise in this circumstance. But it would matter more to me... If Sam stood up for someone, rather than being in the unfortunate circumstance of being black. In part because a lot of the framing of the show is, 
We're only doing what we need to do, so eventually Sam can come back to the 90s. We aren't actually invested in history. We're doing it because we need Sam back. And that investment only grows later on. But like a lot of season one is, I just need to get out of here. (laughs) And in that context, a lot of this experience, even though you know that Sam cares, the context within which he is engaged still kind of sucks to me. So it sounds almost like that this would have been better like as a season three episode where he's not so fix ID fixated on doing whatever's necessary to get back and he might actually might actually be less less problematic. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, again, like I said, like I said at the beginning, the show's tr- trying to find its footing, mm-hmm. and I know why they did, why they want to do an episode like this because it leaves a mark. And also, I kept thinking, I kept thinking of driving Miss Daisy while watching the episodes. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's that's like, a, oh my god, like, I mean, it's yeah, very it's obvious. Like, but like, the other thing is, I know why, I know why an episode like this happened in season one. It's because there is no greater, more obvious historical artifact that everyone can identify is an element of American history and culture than the civil rights movement. If it doesn't happen, it would be kind of out of place. But a lot of the things that I think would have needed to happen for it to be a lot more considered could only have happened when they were, get- when they were getting their footing, and that meant they should have waited. I wouldn't have blamed... Belisario if he if he waited two more years for this because there are things from it ultimately that I want even though ultimately I'm still saying that I am grateful that it exists in its present state it is not it is not a perfect structure but nobody else was gonna do this in the in 1989 so I'm grateful that Belisario thought that it was worth doing what one thing to my memory you would not see in television in the 1980s or any earlier, any as explicit a depiction of, no, this was what the South in the 1950s was really like, with that, that degree of explicitness. And to an extent, I think it was an incredibly shocking thing to show on television in 1989 because like, it was one of those very whitewashed parts of American history that people were like aware of, but in seeing it so viscerally depicted makes it brings it to another level for a lot of the audience for this show. Yeah, definitely. At the 80s, this would have been the most radical version of this story in the 80s. It's just largely because we have the benefit of hindsight. We can acknowledge yeah. that there are far more radical ways to tell that story still. Yeah, I mean, a part of me thinks in terms of, like, at the time, you know, if you think about it as a product of its time, and yes, it, it has its problem, I mean, for heaven's sake, it's it's literally an episode in which a white man occupies the body of a black man. Did we not just see a fucking movie that's about this? I wonder if Jordan Peele got the idea... Hmm. I wonder if- it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me, right? If Jordan Peele possibly got the idea from this, but then was like, but that, but it's a horror story. Yeah. And I say that because there is the implication, we have we don't see it in the season, but that the people that he occupies, like they're in the facility doing something. And I'm sure the, well, let's, we don't need to talk about what happens later where we get to like actually learn what that really gets to. But, but anyway, so like as a product of its time, like we can recognize there's a, there is a need for this story to be told in a way that does not pull any punches. And it does not. I found this very uncomfortable to watch. I also got to this point about, like, I think, like, 
the first time Jesse Tyler, you know, the, the Sam Jesse Tyler, I think the first time he's called the N-word at one point was the moment where, and, and with malice, like with real malice, he's called this in the story. It's like in the first five minutes and they're just being horrible to him. And I was just like, I actually don't want any of these people to be redeemed. I just want there to be a, a pit for all of these people, <laughs> these racist people to go in and mm-hmm. we just cover the pit up and we never let them out again. And I don't know if some of that is just like that some of the thing, even though like segregation doesn't literally exist in the way that this is constructed in our present time, we're still dealing with many of the same problems that this story deals with, sometimes more subtle. And and so I think I've just like run out of patience of like, I actually don't care. I've, I found myself like, I actually don't care what the sheriff's reasons are. I get he's trying to protect his son. I don't give a shit. I do not care that sheriff should not be a sheriff anymore, right? He should be off. Like they should plant him in a field and use him as a scarecrow. Like that's, that's kind of what I got from the, because of just how visceral the story was. And I say all of that as a way of pointing out that while I don't think you could tell this story this way now, I think you'd have to do it in a different way. That would be less problematic. It is still effective as a white person watching this and going, Oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to watch this episode again because it makes me mad. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You know, you know my conservative. I I, I don't know Marshall as I know these two know my relatively conservative family upbringing. How did I actually watch Quantum Leap when it came out and it was on family night? And they, my 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 parents would have gone off the wall to watch this. They're like, no, that's not American and all this stuff. That's wild though when you think about it because. If you showed this episode today in, like, the new Quantum Leap and they just, like, updated this story, there probably would still be people saying, oh, that's not a realistic portrayal of what segregation was like. They were just nicer about it. And it's like, no, no, there's a reason why Flannery O'Connor, like, talks about racist white ladies the way that she does in her fiction. Because these are how these people were even after segregation ended. They just changed the language that they talked about. People like to forget that in American history... Four adults killed a child because he whistled outside a supermarket. Yes, like people who literally got black men killed in the segregation era are still alive or recently died and faced no legal consequences for crimes they committed. I think specifically of the case of Emmett Till, who was murdered after a false accusation of rape. This is like the things that are happening to to Jesse Tyler. Like we understand them in context because in this story, he's technically breaking the law. The law is bullshit, but he's technically breaking the law. But they're committing horrific crimes in order to scare. They're threatening him. They literally almost kill his his granddaughter. Right? There's there's no consequences. I don't I don't care if they just were trying to scare anybody. They drove her off the road, like that. That is attempted murder. Period. End of discussion. Attempted what the fuck is homicide. going on? Yeah. I get it. It's 1955 segregated South, so of course they don't face any real consequences. But then it raises the question of what does this story look like now when we start to look at how we we grok this episode in the context of the world we live in now where that justice still doesn't quite exist? I, I just want to say, because one of the things that I do want to have mentioned on this episode is, in the backdrop of us having this conversation, it has been announced as early as January of 2022 that there is a reboot of Quantum Leap in the works. 
which sounds very promising for people who never experienced Quantum Leap, for the only reason that I just want more young people to experience time travel science fiction, uh, because I care a lot about its capacity for us to say, hey, history was garbage. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, outside of the question of its casting, which I'm particularly curious about, because both of its Sam and Al analogs are people of color. Outside of the fact that, obviously, if we're obeying the same rules as the original, we are engaging with very recent history, although I'm very curious to see if it engages with anything far beyond that in the same, like, time range as the original, because that's where all the meaty stuff in history takes place. The thing that I'm most intrigued by is the potential that that show can not cop out on its on the fact that uh, Sam and Al are living in a version of the United States that is shaped by the experiences that they're having on those leaps. By which I mean, now they've been given the opportunity, if they really do stick the landing with this reboot, to not just go back to the civil rights movement, but to have characters actively observe, I have come from a time that is shaped by this and nothing has changed. For them to have opportunities to ask really probing questions about how time and history is connected to their experience in the present in the way that the original kind of has to avoid precisely because Sam's predicament makes it very difficult for him to engage with the real, with his actual birth timeline or whatever whatever the hell you call it, because we don't get to see it. We, we don't get to see Al seeing it. But we don't very often get to see Al operate in the world acknowledging that we are witnessing a history that has had effects on the way that their real life exists. And I would like to see a remake go, oh, this sucks in the past? That's because it still sucks. Even though we're about to engage with it in this circumstance, we're acknowledging that it's still going to suck. Because if it didn't suck, I wouldn't be able to say that it sucks right now. So you can't have changed it that much. And we need to reckon with that as well. I'm very curious to see whether that happens. And this episode is why. I would say I would also like if if they're going to deal with some of these. Like a lot of the episodes in this season are kind of like they're dealing with issues that are like are a big deal. But they're kind of on a much more low individual level. Like, yeah, yeah low stakes. Like the, the Hitman episode really only affects that like one group of people. It really has no global or countrywide or statewide effect other than the blackout. Other than he picture. starts to blackout. <laughs> but yeah, it, right, right, it, yeah, is, but it yes. is usually very low stakes, personal and low stakes. And over the right. course of the whole run, I actually did a little bit of math here. 80% of the time, Sam is just jumping into a white American man. And that is yeah. very much treated as as his default state. And whenever he is not in a white American male, which is about 18 or 19 episodes, if you add not neurotypical or not um, able-bodied, that's like three or four more episodes. And then once he's a monkey, for reasons. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, Brandon, your face. How? <laughs> No, Belisario specifically spoke to me about this. I'm not supposed to question it too closely. Okay, go right ahead. <laughs> I can get into the monkey episode, but, but whenever he is not a white American male, that is very that becomes like the central thing he needs to solve. So, like in the episode where that he leaps into at the end of of Play It Again, Seymour, which is What Price Gloria, which was filmed for the first season but didn't actually air until the second season. That's the first one where he leaps into a woman. 
and he go and he's in the 1960s and it's very much dealing with the sexist work culture that of of the 1960s and being an attractive woman who is constantly hit on and and, and abused in her workplace and so Every episode where he is not just his default state of being a white American male, it is very specifically about that. Which is interesting because I think that those episodes are important because they are exposing a public to very difficult subjects, some of which are still relevant, maybe differently relevant, but are still relevant. They're not just histories. They were history, they were relevant in the 1980s, and they're still relevant now. (laughs) They are still, yeah, this TV show, like, let's be honest, like, the fact that they're even addressing some of these is probably shocking to certain audiences in 1989, so. Right, and and only having 45 minutes to do so, and because nobody in the cast is, you know, ever in more than one episode besides Sam and Al. Yeah. Like, there is there is no sense of that sort of, you know, that we're going to look back and see what happens to these people afterwards. Or you get Al telling, like, okay, everything's going to be fine now, and Sam leaps. You're not going to have that opportunity to dive in on each of these characters. And it is really a testament to so many of the, the great character actors that they got over the run of the show that they were able to, in a single episode, in a single guest appearance, make somebody feel relatively three-dimensional in, 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 in these little moments and make these, make these characters yeah. that Sam leaps into and the worlds of each of these stories feel already lived in, even though... You're only seeing it in these, in the basically a snapshot of a few days. Mm-hmm. Now, the example is the one, Brandon, especially I appreciate you bringing up at the very first episode with, with uh, I believe her name's Peggy, if I recall correctly, right? The the wife of the pilot, and they take time to kind of show a little about about what it's like to be uh, the wife of a pilot who's also very pregnant and is is going to give birth soon. And I and I love that. And it's also very sweet and I also just love that Sam is just like he he kind of he doesn't like fall for her, but he like grows this immense respect for her. Like he just really appreciates her. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, the whole dancing scene as example. Yeah. It's like, and, and then she's like, "Well, you have two left feet. How are you dancing?" But but just the love and tenderness that he shows towards her in that dancing is really really sweet. It is very sweet. I could see why why such a female audience went went strong for back in the early, very early on in the show, just from that pilot alone. A man born before 1980 who willingly dances with women? My Whoa. God. Yeah. <laughs> but that is another thing that Sam does in, in almost every situation, is he gets in there and he invests in the relationships of the person that he's leaped into would care about and does his best to even though like this is a stranger he met 37 seconds ago does his best to to invest emotionally in them and their needs this is some strange person woman he doesn't really know who she is but he knows she needs her husband and she thinks of him as her husband and so he is going to behave appropriately for to match her needs and i mean i feel like I'm going to make a presumption about the writing, but it, it feels like it must be valid, if only because you have all confirmed for me that Scott Bakula is in, was indeed a heartthrob, a heartthrob at that point in time. Which is, I feel like part of the inherent fantasy that the show is leaning into is the audience knows that Sam's performance is 
he is he has been put in a position where it is ultimately very important for time for timey wimey reasons that have not been fully qualified uh, to my satisfaction that everybody must believe who he is even if he knows that he is not that person so the only thing he's really motivated to do is perform the role as rote as possible he's someone's husband be a husband he's someone's father be a father but at some point he genuinely commits empathetically to the fact that he has a role in this person's life and is not only performing the role through the lens of the person who he's presently inhabiting, but genuinely trying to place some of his own values into that moment. And in some ways make them a better per- make them a better person. Like like the episode yeah. where he's a college where he's a college professor who has uh yeah, he's trying to be a better person, like by pushing pushing away the, the co-ed. Yeah. Even as he's also trying to uh, set him set, set up, trying to fix his uh, love of his life's life with his, fa- with daddy his father problems. at the same time. Yeah, or daddy problems <laughs> at the same time. And I mean, the yeah. first episode for me is one of like the reason why I enjoy the first episode is you'd imagine that's when the the practice of writing that into the show would be at its softest but for me is one of the strongest because sam isn't just going peggy needs her husband right now so i'm going to play that role it's peggy is going through a lot and needs genuine comfort and i'm supposed to know what that feels like so i'm going to actively comfort her because at any moment I might really die if I don't know how to do this goddamn plain bullshit. <laughs> a sensitive man, Scott Bakula yeah. is. Uh, the fact that the show leans into the idea that maybe the problem that Sam has to solve this episode is a relationship issue. So we're just gonna put him next to a pretty woman. Several episodes in a row only for us to learn, no, that's been a red herring. Several episodes in a row. Is also, I think, the show telegraphing to us you know this is not what the show is about, but we're going to give our female audience the fantasy of a man who has no real reason to invest in your relationship, investing in your relationship immediately. Because yeah. some of y'all are in personal relationships with men who should care and don't care as much as Scott Bakula does. Yep, I'm with yeah. you. But it's not just the romantic relationship. It's every, he emotionally commits on every level. Like in yeah. Color mm-hmm. of Truth... Like he treats Jesse's granddaughter like she's his granddaughter. Like, like he doesn't he doesn't hesitate in the slightest. Like, okay, I I'm going to be as emotionally committed to her as Jesse would be in the same moment. But also because Sam has his moral code and isn't going to sleep with any of these women under false pretenses. Yeah, it, it's it then, remarkable. It then takes chased. that to that next level yeah. of of of, yeah. Yeah. of romantic hero. Dr. Sam Beckett is, as uh, my Trini mother and grandmother would both have said, a man to put in house. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I think I think that's where we can start to wind down, because we could talk, I'm sure, much more, but we can't keep Marshall or anyone here. I could do a whole podcast I'm sure, I'm on sure this if we show. ask Marshall right now to tell us the name and synopsis of every episode from 1 to 90-something. 97. He just... Go off. 97. He knows the number. <laughs> he knows the, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. probably could. Well, all right, folks. That is it for this show. Before we say goodbye, we have heard supposedly through the publishing grapevine that our guest, Marshall, 
has like some sort of book or whatever. I I don't really a book. I think yeah, it's, yeah, it's some sort of thing. He's a that writer. You put words. Uh, he's a writer. What I don't know. I, I found uh, time to write despite guests. watching every single yeah, episode it, of Quantum Leap. Yeah. <laughs> despite your encyclopedic knowledge of the one biggest distraction that all writers have to deal with, apparently you actually write books. Yeah, and it's amazing. So it's out from Daw. It's called The Assassins of Consequence. And Marshall, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about it and where folks can find you. So The Assassins of Consequence is the latest book in the Meridane saga, which is four intertwined series set in the series of Meridane. And so Assassins is the fourth book in explicitly the Thorn series, following The Thorn of Denton Hill, The Alchemy of Chaos, and The Impostors of Aventil. And it follows Varenix Calvert, who is a magic student by day, and vigilante by night, waging his personal war against a drug cartel. And over the course of the last books, Varenix has built up quite a sizable rogues gallery of enemies who he's stopped or thwarted over the course of time. And this book, his identity of the thorn gets out, so they're all coming at him at once. And so it's going to be a big, brutal, Sinister Six-esque Sort of sinister fight. Six. I think we had that conversation, didn't we? Yes. You yes. says this is sort of Sinister Six, isn't it? I'm like, eh, yes. Um, so that's this sounds rad. that book, which is, and you can check out that and all the other Meridane books that I've written over the past few years. I, you can find me. And you've also written a non-Meridane book. I, I did understand. write a non-Meridane book, which is the Velocity of Revolution, which is a queer norm diesel punk novel about colonization and and motorcycles and tacos and oh i want tacos now you can find all that all the stuff about all my books at my website which is mrmoreska.com you can follow me on twitter as at marshall moreska and those are the key places to find me out in the world plus you can listen to me on my podcast which is world building for masochists with my wonderful hosts co-hosts cass morris and rowetta miller excellent well folks thanks so much for being here and thank you very much marshall for both i mean i know it was hard for you to choose to be on the show today and so it was a real trial at all but thank you so much for coming on with us i appreciate it thank you so much marshall yeah this is cool it was very cool so folks at home if you'd like let us know what you thought go to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions tell us what your favorite episode uh, of the first season of Quantum Leap is. We'd love to hear. Follow us at Skiffy and Fanti on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to the newsletter at skiffyandfanti.com slash newsletter. And last, if you love what we do, two ways to support us or the two easiest ways, patreon.com slash skiffyandfanti where you get access to Discord and other kinds of fun things and leave us reviews on iTunes, etc., etc. You can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, seanduke.net, alphabet streams on Twitch and patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. You can find me at The Rising Tithes on Twitter, patreon.com slash The Rising Tithes, twitch.tv slash The Rising Tithes when I stream, and unspeculatesf.com, where I'm currently GMing Fractal Spire, a Girl by Moonlight actual play. And you can find me, Prince Justin, on Twitter with the V, pr- patreon.com slash Prince Justin, on many VOGs and podcasts, including tour.com and Nerds of a Feather and other places. And one day when I get a new computer, I will stream too. I am Prince Justin on Twitch. Fantastic. So as is required, I need to make the uh, episode awkward. Uh, I just want you all to know this, that I spent an an inordinate amount of time when I finished the last episode of this season wondering how exactly bras work for Sam, given that he is still Scott Bakula putting on a bra as a woman, but yet he has to wear appropriate cup sizes because he does have breasts. Just for him, he doesn't see them. So how exactly (laughs) does this work? Sean? 
People who nitpick the details get what? Uh, they get to ride a happy horse? No, 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 no. That's not what the horse does. <laughs> they get... The horse brings them flowers? Nope, that's not what the horse does. Horse they apples? get kicked? They get kicked. They get kicked. Okay. Do you want to get kicked by a horse? I Look, I just want to know, do they automatically fill out? Do the cups fill out? Like, what, what is going on? If you keep asking that question, you're going to be kicked by a horse. That's all I'm like, saying. Like, when, when he looks down, does he just see, like a void where the cups of his bra has filled out with the breasts of the person he is. That's what I want to know. This horse is going to kick you very hard. I'm sorry. It's going to leave a mark, Sean. It's going to leave a mark. <laughs> pressing, pressing questions. And on that note, awkward ending and scene. <laughs> If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>